God, you're worthy of our praise. Uh, every bit of gratitude and celebration we give to you. Um, for what can we say but, but thank you, God. Thank you for life, for breath, for all good things. Every bit of it is from you. Uh, every shred of joy that we get from this season comes from your hands, and it's from your hands that we give back to you. It's from the very breath that you give us, we give back praise. Thank you for life. Thank you for Christ. Uh, thank you for this season where we get to celebrate in a particular way his arrival the first time. And God, I pray that you'd move us, um, maybe specifically from the realm of the sentimental to the, the supernatural. Uh, help us to understand things from your word that move us to a place of gratitude because of the theological realities of Christmas, not merely the sentimental components of Christmas. Thank you, that, Jesus, that you, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, that you chose uh, in your remarkable humility to dwell among us, to put on flesh that you might offer your life as a sacrifice in our place. And we celebrate you this morning. And we thank you for all that you've done. Would you open our minds and our hearts through the power of your spirit to the the amazing work that you've done and help us be grateful, help us be mindful of your, your love for us as we go and humbled as well by the fact that you would come and dwell among us and die in our place. And we love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go and have a seat. What a treat. What a treat. So good to be with you. So good to sing with you. Some ways I wish we could just keep singing. But I got a job to do, otherwise people wonder what's going on. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Matthew. We're starting the book of Matthew this morning. Feels appropriate. And I can't tell you what page because I didn't look. I think it's somewhere in the high 700s maybe in your Bible based on where we were as we finished the book of Haggai. Uh, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are going to be starting a, uh, I don't know how long it will be. It'll probably be somewhere around the next couple of years. We'll be studying through the book of Matthew. And this Sunday, I'm actually not joking. This is a massive book, and some have called this book the greatest book ever written, uh, and it is really large, and it will take us some time to get through it. <laughs> I can't believe you laughed at me. Like, it'll t it's going to take us a couple of years, all right? Just, just be ready for it. That's hilarious. I, didn't, I wasn't expecting that. Man, oh, man. Anyways, um, our lives are built on promises. Um, you're from the most profound relational promises and the covenant of marriage to the seemingly superficial promises of, of you bringing a dish to your dinner this afternoon. Like all our days even seem to accompany some measure of promise. There's probably people expecting you later today, right? You have a promise of a flight for some of you that are going to catch the next couple of days that we'll see if that promise holds true. And, and our, our lives really in, in many ways go up and down based on promises, promises made and promises kept. And if you want to test this theory, like just, just mess around and forget the mashed potatoes you were promised to bring this afternoon and see if it affects your family relationships. <laughs> and that's a trivial example, but there are a lot of other examples. And the stability of our relationships in large measure depends on promise. And some of us know the, the incredible damage that can be caused in the midst of relationship because of broken promises and there's a way in which the whole Bible is about a promise or promises. 
Uh, author Michael Lawrence put it this way. He says, in a very profound sense, the story of the Bible is nothing more than a story of a single promise made by God himself and how he kept and will keep that promise. So this morning, on this Christmas Eve, this Christmas season, uh, my prayer for us is that every single one of us would leave convinced of this, uh, that Christmas is a celebration of God keeping his promise. Christmas is a celebration of God keeping his promise. At the heart of everything we celebrate is, is the God of promise who has kept and is keeping his promises to his people. And this morning as we start our couple-year journey through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, this, this book was written by one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, some have called it the greatest book ever written. It's the most Jewish of the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it chronicles the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Pastor J.C. Ryle put it this way, that the Gospels really capture uh, the doing and the dying of Jesus, his words, and his works. And Matthew is one of those chronicles of the life, the ministry, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's going to be a real joy to go through it together. But anytime we think about promises, we have to think of fulfillment, right? Promises kept. When we think about promise and fulfillment, that, that point in between where we, where we don't have fulfillment yet, what do we do? We, we wait. Like we wait. Sometimes we wait a long time. And Matthew's gospel account has been preceded by a substantial period of waiting. There's effectively a, a period of 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. A remarkable, deep longing period of silence where there's, there's no voice from God speaking to the people. And the reason I bring that up is because as we begin to read the book of Matthew, as we read in just a moment, we're going to read through the first 17 verses together. As we begin to read, what I want you to feel is something of the, the silence of centuries broken as we read those words. I want you to, to hear, I want you to feel, as it were, the fulfillment of promises because there's a fulfillment of a promise found in the very first sentence of the book of Matthew. Now, I think if we're honest, if you've read your Bible at all, particularly if you've read the Old Testament, if you've read the story of Jesus, you come across some genealogies in the Bible. Now, how many of us have skipped over a genealogy reading their Bible? You better put your hand up, y'all. Like you, like, you know, like we get to, we're like, all right, just a list of names, I get it. Like we tend to either skip it or we read it and we see it as largely unimportant. And this genealogy, and you won't be surprised by this, is remarkably important because it connects, it really holds hands with all of the promises of old and links them to the ushering in of this new work and the fulfilling work of Jesus, the baby king who had come. And genealogies were very important to the Jewish culture. They have been throughout history to many cultures. And although we may be tempted to skip, we want to look at every word because God has kept his promise. And so with that, we'll read verses 1 through 17. And I want you to feel, maybe even in just the listing of, listing of names, some of the, the ache for the substance behind these words. I think in some ways it's kind of emblematic of that period of silence, but let's read it together as we read this list of names and then we'll go back and 
largely focus on the first sentence. And this is the book of Matthew. This is God's word for us in chapter 1, and this is what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. You might remember Ruth from our study through that book. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, who you might remember from the book of Haggai, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, in reading a genealogy on Christmas Eve, I think it probably breaks like every church growth principle in the book. Like, you want to make a Christmas Eve service or message really slick and simple. And so, reading a gene- genealogy wouldn't be high on the list of a Christmas Eve service, but for the fact that it ushers in the Christ. And so as we look at sentence one, verse one in the book of Matthew, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And there are three mammoth titles in that one sentence. So Jesus was Jesus's name and Christ was his title. There's really three titles to this one man, this child that we know as Jesus who grew to be the Savior. And the first one, so these three titles are ascribed to Jesus, three promises bound up in and fulfilled by one person. So the first one we'll look at is Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, the common word translated as anointed one in the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who is spoken of from of old. He fulfills the promises of God to his people. So the title of Christ shoots us to a promise made all the way back in Genesis. There's so much that could be said here, but I'm going to take this route with it. Because really the first mention, the first whisper of the Christ is found in the Garden of Eden. 
In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, it says this. This is God pronouncing his judgment upon the serpent after Adam and Eve had sinned against God. God says this. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring, or the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise the woman's offspring's heel. So this promise is of a unique descendant. So right after the initial fall, where Adam and Eve rebel against God, effectively saying, we don't want you to be our king, we want to rule ourselves, the very thing you said would bring us death, we believe will provide us life, and we've chosen that instead of you. That's what the Bible calls sin. In that initial moment of sin, God says, here's what happened. What happens is that our relationship with God goes from the sweetness of harmony to the, the damaging effects of hostility between us and God. That's what happens in the very beginning. And so what happens is God pronounces his judgment upon the serpent, but in that pronouncement of judgment, he actually gives us a promise. He says there's going to be this unique offspring or descendant who's going to come, and the serpent's going to bruise his heel, but as his heel is bruised, he's going to crush the serpent's head. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's whispers and different pictures and types and shadows of, the, of this one that would come, who would solve the problem of our sin, who would remedy our situation and change back our hostility back into harmony. And that's the gospel message of Jesus, this unique descendant, this Christ who came to remedy our greatest problem. Christmas is a celebration of God keeping his promise. Jesus, the Christ, is this promised descendant, this long-awaited offspring. That's why we see in Luke chapter 2, like the good news of great joy pronounced by the angels to the shepherds. You probably remember it, right? Luke 2, 11, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, Christ the Lord. The godly man Simeon, when he met Jesus. We see this in Luke chapter 2, 25 through 32. It says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation or comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Jesus, the Christ, is comfort for the weary. Anybody weary out there? He's the savior of sinners. He's the light for those who dwell in darkness. He's the glory for those who are captured by their gloom, which shines in such a way to break us from that darkness. For the weary, Christmas provides comfort because God has kept his promise and he always will. For the sinner, Christmas rings of salvation. For the son came to be bruised to crush our strife with God. For the ones dwelling in darkness, the light of Christ exposes us while simultaneously showing us the path to life. 
for the gloomy and discouraged, the glory of God's love for us satisfies our deepest longings. And you may be here surrounded by what feels like a pile of your own regrets and the rubble of your rebellion. And God wants you to hear, because he's a promise-keeping God, that his faithfulness is greater than your failure. His salvation is greater than your sin. His grace is so much stronger than your guilt. Would you come to him today? Would you trust in this long-awaited, long-anticipated Christ, the Messiah, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the next title we see is the son of David. This could be a whole set of sermons on its own. Matthew's gospel refers to Jesus as the son of David more than any other gospel, 10 times plus, just a few in some of the other gospels. David was the most famous king in Israel's history and known as a man after God's own heart. But truly, his legacy is found not in what he did, but the promise made to him. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's a promise that God made to David, and he says this. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. There's that word again. After you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Firstly, speaking of Solomon, his son, Solomon shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So in the physical, David's most notable son was Solomon. And Solomon's reign as a king was significant. But here's the deal. It wasn't permanent. And this promise contains substantial forever language that you can't find fulfilled in either David or Solomon. Why? Because they died. They didn't last forever. And so there's a way in which this promise is looking for fulfillment in someone other than David and Solomon. It must because it rings into forever. God promises to establish the throne of David forever, to recognize Jesus as the son of David, is to celebrate God keeping his promise to David of a king from his family who would reign forever. Matthew provides a genealogy of Jesus that follows the kings of Israel. Leon Morris said it this way, the legal descendants of David are what he provides. Those who would actually have reigned had the kingdom continued. If you look in verse 17 of what we read, it says, so all the, gener all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So verse 17 explains how Matthew ordered his genealogy in a really specific way. He left out some individuals in the family tree, which wasn't uncommon for genealogies. But he grouped them in a way that was memorable and also focused on Jesus' legal ancestry from David. All pointing to the fact that Jesus is the king who would come and reign forever. He would be established forever. There would be no end to his reign and his kingdom. And he does now 
reign and will reign forever, which is good news for those who look to him. Matthew wants it to be crystal clear that Jesus is the long-awaited one who will restore David's throne. Christmas is a celebration of God keeping his promise. Not only the promise for a redeemer, or Christ, but the promise for a ruler. Jesus isn't merely from David. You could say he's the, he's the final and he's the greater David. He's the fulfillment of David as a king. You see in Isaiah chapter 9, a passage that we often read at Christmas time for good reason. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, written some 700 years before Jesus was even born. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The faithfulness of God will accomplish this. There's no end to his government. There's no end to his goodness. Praise be to God for that. His rule is the security and the joy of his subjects. And you might be hearing me talk about this and be like, what's all the fuss? Like, why? What's the relevance for me of the history of God's promise? This whole issue of kingdom, like, what does it matter much? To, like, why does it matter much to me? Well, let me share this with you. The Bible actually depicts every person as a part of a kingdom. Every one of us is ruled by someone or something. The question is, what are you ruled by and or who are you ruled by? And what we have in the gospel is we have this offer, an invitation to be a part of God's forever righteous and just kingdom any kingdom established apart from God is only going to lead to oppression and difficulty and even destruction. But the son of David can deliver you from the brutality and oppression of the kingdom of your choices and place you under the rule of God's promised king whose rule is just and right. If I could say it this way, the gospel, the good news of the Christian message is this. It's an invitation for you to swap kingdoms. There's an invitation for you this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ and you feel something of what I just described, you feel the sting of your own choices and rebellion against God. You feel the guilt of all your failures. God is offering you today through the message of the gospel found in Jesus Christ, the ability to swap kingdoms, to change from what the Bible calls the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, to no longer be a stranger and alien, but to be a, a child of God instead. Will you receive that invitation? We're all ruled by something. And my invitation to you, God's invitation to you, is be ruled by the one who is righteous and just and faithful and whose kingdom will ultimately endure forever. Let him be your king today. The third title we see is the son of Abraham. God's promise to Abraham was that he would make a great nation out of him. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. 
And God certainly did make a nation out of him. In Genesis 12, verse 2, it says, And I will make, you, make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Genesis 12, 2. And that's what happened historically. Abraham's family turned into a whole nation, the nation of Israel. But that's not the full extent of the promise. The very next verse in Genesis 12, God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So not only would Abraham be the recipient of God's blessing, he would be the source of God's blessing for the whole world. This one man and his family would be the source of God's blessing for the whole earth. Jesus is the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of God was, wasn't only found in Abraham, but because of who had come through Abraham. And a blessing that's for every person, every personality, every nationality, every ethnicity and tongue and tribe, nation, a blessing that is for the whole earth, all found in Jesus. Now, I'm not sure if the rule is true that every family has a crazy uncle or crazy aunt. You might be that person. You don't have to raise your hand. But we all have probably someone in our family that we're like, I don't know if I'm going to claim that one, right? But here's the wild thing about Jesus' family tree. Y'all, if, if you do a study on everybody in this genealogy, it's the minority of these people that had any semblance of being put together. Like, this is a mess. I mean, this would be like a biblical hot mess, this ancestry. There'd be a whole lot of people in here you wouldn't, wouldn't want to connect yourself to as a part of your family. That's what's so amazing about it. I don't know if you've ever seen like the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer movie from like the 60s, the one with Hermie who wants to be a dentist. Anybody ever seen that? Those are a little bit older. So the young kids are like, what is, what are you talking about? It was like the first, you know, live action sort of movie. If you haven't watched it, just go watch it. It has nothing biblical in it at all. But the point of bringing it up, part of the movie is this island of misfit toys. They're just these strange toys, kind of like, what are they doing here? And that's what this feels like. Like there is, Jesus' genealogy looks more like the island of misfit toys than it looks like some lineage of royalty. And there's so much that could be said here. But I would just say this, that's the point. That's the point. I read this when we were studying through the book of Ruth. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, Jesus is heir of a line in which flows the blood of the harlot or the prostitute Rahab. She's in there. You might have seen her. And of the rustic Ruth. She's a Gentile, a Moabitess. He's akin to the fallen and to the lowly, and he will show his love even to the poorest and most obscure. Just let that sink in for a second. 
the poorest and most obscure. Jesus' identification with sinners is so deep, like so unimaginably deep, that in his family tree, he not only has governors, he has Gentiles. He not only has princes, he has prostitutes. He associates with the lowly, those who are stained more than they are anything close to a saint. But that's the point, right? Isn't that why we're gathered in this room? To celebrate the fact that we have a place at the table? Like we have... We have means to know God and to worship him, and we sing because we've been forgiven. Like, we are the lowest. We are the poorest. We're the weak and the frail. And we get to be a part of his family. We get to be a child of royalty, a son to the king. That's why we sing. That's why we celebrate. Every shred of paper we tear off gifts just remind us that we've been given a gift that's unimaginable. Because who are we that we would be in the mind of God, much less forgiven and included in his family. But it's not merely what we look at when we see in the past as we see the individuals leading up to Jesus. We see the same thing in the end. Same thing in the end. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, you know that God who makes and keeps his promises. The promise you'll be most sure of at the end when you gather with the collective group of the redeemed from every season of history, from every place on the planet, whoever was to have placed their faith in Jesus, what you're going to know at that point is God keeps his promises. Because what I see right now is what Revelation speaks of. The people from every tribe and tongue, people group and nation, and their only confidence is Jesus Christ alone. By grace, through faith in Christ, that's it. His finished work, no work of my own, no work of your own. And there will be no question when we stand there in the end that Christmas ultimately was a celebration of God keeping his promise. The people who walked in darkness have truly seen God's promise, great light. The people who dwell in the land of dark shadows on them, God's promised light has shown The promised son has come. The promised savior has arrived. The promised king is born. And he reigns today. And he will forever reign in justice and righteousness. Christmas, be sure of this, is a celebration of God keeping his promise. And my heart for you and for your family is that you trust in him today and savor the fact that he loves you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. the word thank you is is woefully insufficient that we praise you that we bless you for your marvelous works you've done incredible things god you made us by yourself and for yourself the very thing that we can never accomplish on our own namely fulfilling the law father you sent your own son that he might fulfill it for us 
perfectly loving you, perfectly loving others, actively obeying you for his whole life. Jesus, your humility is to us unimaginable. Because who could fathom a king becoming a helpless child? Who could imagine a God who never sleeps or slumbers having to sleep as a baby? Who could imagine the one who possesses all power being weak and frail and dependent upon his own parents to survive? Who could imagine the one who angels, because of how praiseworthy you are, can never cease singing your praise? Who could imagine that you would come and be afflicted and cursed and abandoned and ultimately die a criminal's death so that we didn't have to? Who could imagine? You could. And you did. And we are grateful. Thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. And we celebrate the fact that you keep your promises and you will keep your promises. And Jesus, your first coming is a foreshadowing of the day that you'll return. It's not the end of the story. And there will be a day where you'll come back and you'll take us as your own, finally and fully and your righteous just rule will be here on this earth. And we look forward to that day. And I pray that we sing now, that we sing this song, and that we sing over the next couple of days with a sense of deep gratitude for what you've done. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace and your kindness. And God, would you move in such a way in this room that any heart that is turned away from you would be turned toward you, that any person who wants to trust in their rule of their own life would be surrounded by the rubble of their rebellion so that they would turn to you and, and be a recipient of your blessing and not your opposition. Thank you for the gift and the invitation of salvation this morning. We love you and we sing to you because you deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll sing one last song. just a couple quick verses from Colossians chapter 1 as we go. Just let this be a prayer for us as we enjoy these moments as we head out. Colossians 1 verses 12 through 14. I'll personalize it for us. It says, May we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, his Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Uh, so grateful that you joined us today. Uh, if we can serve you in any way, uh, either this season or just in general, please let us know. But we love you all. Enjoy your time with your families. We'll be praying for safe travels, and Lord willing, we'll see you next week. Okay, thanks.